we got to why I'm not an agnostic and I began weighing the, the reasons why and I realized I can't do that in two weeks. It's going to take three, four, five, six, seven. But I told you I'd finish it this week and I lied. <laughs> I think I'll finish it next week. But I'm sorry, uh, uh, and if some of you are just like, enough already, we're not agnostics. I understand, <laughs> but I, I'm i a dog with a bone. As the youngs can tell you, I am a dog with a bone. <laughs> I'm not going to leave it until I have gnawed it to pieces. And so <laughs> I've got this bug in my head about wanting to deal with this thoroughly. And I don't want to give you just a superficial explanation. I don't want to come to you with just a a simple line or two that doesn't really stand up under scrutiny. I got an email from a gentleman in South Dakota who was watching this series on the internet just this week. And he sent it through the office. We've got a general, if you want information about the law firm type thing, send us an email. And then there are people within the office that direct those emails to where they go. So this one got directed to me because it was, I'd really, I I watched these classes on the internet and I'd really like to engage in some dialogue with Mr. Lanier about this recent class. And I thought, you know, I emailed him back, said, no way. Uh, No, I, I... Email me, I said, I would be honored to get to talk to you about it. This is me, and this is my email address. You don't have to go through the office, and, and let's dialogue. The, one of the reasons why is these classes, they get put on the Internet, and, and, and we've got people from all different walks of life who watch these things. And I'm not a good servant to you, I'm not a good servant to them, but I'm not a good servant to the Lord. If I just give these little superficial arguments that might make us feel real good, who are believers, but not try to inform and 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 make others who are not believers at least think. I'm not in a position where in these classes I think that I'm going to convince the world to agree with me. But I do think if we dig deep enough to where I'm truly giving you the reasons why in some measure of depth that at least those who don't agree with me or perhaps you will think about it. It will engage them enough to where if they don't enter into dialogue with me, they enter into dialogue with someone else or they read something or they process and they begin to think about things. Some might even begin saying something like, Lord, if you are there, please help me better understand, discern, and recognize you. Those are the things that that can bear fruit if we properly grow the tree. So thank you for your patience as we go through these things and as we discuss why I'm not an agnostic. Now, there are those who claim, those who claim that I don't believe in God because in the science versus God debate, science wins. Now, you read that as a claim. I don't believe in God because in the science versus God debate, science wins. And when you word it that way, And it's kind of hard to fight. I mean, two plus two is four. That or some blind leap off of a cliff hoping someone will be there when you land. If it's phrased that way, it carries its own answer. I would suggest to you that the question itself is not properly phrased. So let me be lawyer for a moment. 
When I file a lawsuit, you start a lawsuit with a petition in state court, in Texas state court. Federal court, it's called a complaint. Other states generally call it a complaint. Texas, we like to do our own thing. Smith versus Jones, plaintiff's original petition. It always starts with Smith v. Jones or whatever the names might be. Sometimes you'll put V.S. instead of V. But what that means is, it is Smith who is against Jones. One side or the other is going to be a winner. One side or the other is going to be a loser. Smith versus Jones. But, what if Smith and Jones are on the same side? What if Smith and Jones are suing Williams? Then Smith and Jones get on, as we say in legal terminology, the same side of the V. It's Smith and Jones on one side of the V. It's Williams on the other side of the V. Because Smith and Jones are not against each other. They're not antagonistic. They're not opposite. They each exist as their own entities. But they're on the same side for some reasons within this lawsuit. You follow me? Okay. Let me put it now into the language of this class. Is it... God versus science, or might it better be said, it's God and science versus bad theology? Second, thank you, Hank. Because I don't believe in God because in the science versus God debate, God science wins. I don't think there's a science versus God debate. I think science and God are on the same side. If there's a debate, it's between God and science and bad theology or God and science and bad science. But God and science are on the same side of the V, I believe. So as we're going through this process of why I'm not an agnostic and I'm weighing the evidence for God and the evidence against God, I go through all of the things we've talked about thus far, but we get to this final element. How does God mesh with science in making sense of the world? Not just the planet, but the cosmos of nature. So we look at how does God mesh with science making sense of nature. And we've put these things in scales and weighed them. But let's independently, all by itself, look at this issue. All other things being equal, how does God mesh with science in making sense of the cosmos? Where this is really troublesome to most people is on the issue of evolution. There is a huge fight within certain elements of the Christian culture between the idea of evolution and creation. And and it's within that context mostly, not exclusively, but mostly, I see the idea that God and science are at odds with each other. So what I'd like to do today is set up the context of the biblical issues and then next week look more carefully at the creation story in Genesis and also another set of biblical claims about God and nature that the apostle, the rabbi, Paul puts out. So this week we've got to start with context because context is very, very important if we're ever going to understand scripture. Don't get me wrong. You can be in the third grade and you can read the gospel of John and you can understand the need to put your faith in Jesus. You can be a a, a 45-year-old adult 
with very little biblical background, you can read the Gospel of John and you can understand the need to put your faith in Jesus. John 3.16 is not a hard passage to understand. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in, uh, that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have an everlasting life. That's not rocket science. It's not quantum physics. It's pretty easy to grasp. But there are other issues in the Bible that are not easy to grasp. And there are things in the Bible that are difficult to understand without good study. So, context becomes very important. The context becomes important not just because we need to understand within an entire passage what one scripture means. That's context, right? You don't want to take a sentence out of context, a paragraph out of context. That's context. But context is important because we're dealing with some languages that have been dead for a long time. And we need to understand just some of the words, some of the expressions. I could tell you something is seven up. And you might know that it's a drink, but you might also know that it's the score after the first quarter of a football game. Seven up. Expressions have different meanings in different days and ages. There are different cultural aspects. There are different historical aspects. There are different ways of writing things. There's all sorts of different ways that the context becomes important. So if I'm going to say that God and science are against each other or God and science are on the same side of the V... I need to be a diligent student of what the Bible actually says. I need to understand it in context. So in this regard, let me talk to you for a moment about just some simple things. Here, this is what the Bible is not. The Bible is not a 21st century novel. Now I'm using in my illustration the girl on the train. I'm not endorsing that novel. I've never read it. But it's pretty fresh in my mind because I was on a train recently and I saw a girl reading it. (laughs) And I thought, that's pretty funny. There's a girl on the train reading the girl on the train. Felt like I was caught in this endless time loop. You know, it's like seeing a mirror of a mirror of a mirror of a mirror. And you just wonder how far back it would go. So I don't know the book. But the Bible is not a 21st century novel. It's not written that way. Shouldn't be understood that way. Shouldn't be read that way. The Bible is not a modern textbook. It's not. It's not written like a textbook. It's not written to be the textbook. We shouldn't read it like a textbook. We shouldn't understand it like a textbook. To do so is to take it out of context. The Bible is not a doctoral dissertation. Wasn't written like one, shouldn't be read like one, shouldn't be understood like one. Let me tell you what the Bible is. The Bible is a collection of writings that span many different types. You've got poetry, you've got narrative, you've got history, you've got allegory, you've got type and anti-type, you've got all sorts of different types of writing written by a number of different authors under the guidance of one Holy Spirit, but a number of different authors over a time period that spans over a thousand years. It's set into distinct historical, cultural, and geographical contexts. There are some expressions you read. Like someone from the south goes up to Jerusalem. But then you'll read about someone from the north going up to Jerusalem. 
Oh, gee, is it wrong? No, Jerusalem's up on a hill. Doesn't matter where you're coming from, you go up to Jerusalem. But if we read go up, we're thinking like we got a map. No, don't go up, you got to go down. You've got to understand the geographical context, the cultural context, the historical context, if you really want to dig into it. So the importance of context isn't important in all of those areas, historical, linguistic, and cultural. And we need to pursue each one of those. Let me give you an example of of some of the problems that happen. By the way, I need a comma after historical. Historical and linguistic are two different things. You know, there are not a lot of, of, of Hebrew vocabulary words compared to English. We have a lot of English words. There's a plethora of English words. We've got a multitude of words. There's many of them. There's a lot. There's a ton. So many different ways with different nuances. Not so Hebrew. Hebrew had a very limited vocabulary. And some of the words had to stretch and mean a lot of different things. And so just linguistically, let me give you a challenge. I want you to imagine that you've gone back to 1500 B.C. And you found a goat herder. And you've been given the chore of explaining how genetic modification to a nearby vineyard might be able to alter the DNA of the the plant such that mold is not such a pervasive problem. Now, sit down with that goat herder from 1500 B.C., 3,500 years ago, and start talking some DNA. He's not even going to get the acid part of DNA, the A, much less the nucleic part of the N. Doesn't have the words for it. Might have a word for, no, you don't have a word for acid. You've got vinegar. So you're going to use the word for vinegar? You're going to have like almost no shot. Because the necessary vocabulary and thought forms and science isn't there. DNA isn't starting to be understood until the 1800s. And the double helix isn't isn't modeled until Crick and Watson do it in the 1950s. And the genome, the human genome, is finally figured out in just the last, what, 10 years? Maybe 15 now. This is, it wasn't there. So if we're going to go back over 3,000 years, by the way, I don't have time for that clock to get us back 3,000 years and get us through in time to get back to Dallas. So don't be counting the hours. Just be proud of the fact I figured out how to put an animated GIF into PowerPoint. (laughs) If you go back over 3,000 years to the first few chapters of Genesis... And I'm not talking about when they happened. I'm talking about when they were written or verbalized. What stands out is that Israel sticks out from all of its neighbors. Now, by the way, freebie here. Of course, I'm a believer. I've never hidden that from anybody watching these and certainly not y'all. But if Israel merely is inheriting the culture of its area and doesn't have some divine revelation, it stuns me that what Israel 
understands to be or what it's writing scripture conveys is so starkly different than all of the surrounding cultures. I, it, it truly sticks out from all of the others. It sticks out and it's different in what it says about God, in what it says about nature and the world, <clears throat> and what it says about people, about you and me. So I'd like to spend some time this morning, and this is part of putting it into context so that we can understand what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are saying, which we'll talk about next week. Look at the differences in God between what Israel and its neighbors thought. Israel and the others, as I said, had very different views. For example, Israel, there is one God. One God. Israel with its monotheism exists in a sea of peoples and neighbors and cultures that believe in polytheism, that believe there are many gods. Oh yes, for a period of time in the 1300s BC, Akhenaten and the Pharaoh in Egypt tried to posit that perhaps there was one God Aten, who was above all the others, or maybe even a monotheistic God. Of course, as Christians, we're wondering if Joseph had anything to do with that. But, but aside from that one Pharaoh experience, which was quickly reversed, and his name blotted out because he didn't do proper service to all the other gods, outside of that, you're not going to find monotheists beyond Israel in that arena, in that area. Second, Israel has a God who is above creation. The neighbors have gods that are part of creation. Huge difference. Huge difference. Let's go back to Egypt. Let me show you a picture from Egypt. So here is a picture very similar to what is uh, uh, above one of the tombs, and it conveys some very common Egyptian stories about the world and about nature. Here you have the god Geb. Geb is the earth. He's the fellow laying down in the picture. Okay. Now, Geb used to be way too intimate with his sister, Nut. Nut is the sky. And Geb and Nut were always hugging each other. They were in an embrace all the time. So another god, the father god of sorts, sends Shu in to break the couple up. So Shu is the atmosphere god, who's holding up Nut, the sky god, to keep Nut away from Geb, the earth god, who's so upset about it, he cries and makes oceans. The gods are part of creation. That's so... I mean, the Genesis story, you read those first couple of chapters of Genesis... And God's not part of creation crying the oceans. He's bringing them into existence out of nothing by the power of His voice. They are not gods. They are the creation of one God. And Israel has a revelation thoroughly distinct, truly unique from the rest of its neighbors. God in Israel, above creation. God of the neighbors, part of creation. Next difference. The God of Israel is outside of space and time. Now, space and time are 21st century, well, 20th century words. 
you know, they, they, they grew in their meaning, especially with Einstein and, and, and uh, as he theorized about how space and time work together and things. But space and time, even if we just think of it in non-Einsteinian manner, just in, in rudimentary understanding of those terms, space, the, the, the existence of this universe, you know, in Star Trek manner, you know, um, time, the clicking of the clock, the passage of moments, the, the, the ultimately movement, if you will, throughout. Now, there, there's some really cool stuff that happens when you try and put those two things together and see how, depending upon traveling speeds and distances and things like that, time can be distorted. We just think of time like the seconds on our watch because we're thinking about the planet going around the, the sun and keeping track of it or rotating. That's, that's not there. The point is, whether we think in our terms or whether we think in rudimentary terms, God exists outside of it. God's not a creature of time. God can stop time. God's not bound by time. God can take a woman who's too old to have a child and give her a child. Time does not dictate anything to God. Space does not dictate anything to God. God is beyond it. The neighbors of Israel have God locked, the gods locked in space and time. Let me give you some examples. There's a story you can read. Uh, actually, it's a collection of stories, the Enuma Elish, which are Mesopotamian creation stories. They're stories from the neighbors of Israel. You can get them in various translations. I've put the King book up here because it's got a good title. I like Lawson Younger's translations because he's a friend of our class and has been here. Um, uh, but the Enuma Elish, here's something. You've got these two gods among many, Apsu and Tiamat. They mingle their waters together and more gods are formed. And these are gods who become the, uh, uh, the, the elements of earth. You've got another place in the Enuma Elish where uh, the god Apsu is put to sleep by a magic spell of Ea. And magic was considered in their era part of the earth. They thought that they, they believed sort of in a Harry Potter earth uh, because things happened that they didn't have causal explanations for. So it must just be a bunch of different kinds of magic and things. So you've got... Uh, 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 the, the, the rules of this universe apply and of this world apply to the gods. So Apsu is able to be put to sleep by a magic spell of Ea and he gets killed. Then you've got all of the Peyton Place drama that goes with it. See, the gods are captive in space and time. They're not above it. You'd never read anywhere in Old Testament scriptures a concern that God's going to get killed. I mean, Israel, you're not getting that out of the Revelation. God doesn't walk through the Garden of Eden in fear that man might decide to off him. It's just not, that's not the revelation that, you, that Israel uniquely has. Here's a huge difference. For Israel, God is not a sexual being. In his image, he makes them male and female. You'll find places where God is the father, but you'll also find places in the Hebrew scriptures where God is referenced as a mother. Can a mother forget her nursing child? Nor can I forget you, Israel, the prophet Isaiah writes. You know, this idea of God being a sexual being, it's not, not Jewish, it's not in there. On the other hand, among the neighbors of Israel, the gods are sexual. They're sexual if you go up to Greece, if you go over to Rome, if you go up to Norway. 
they're sexual beings. So let me give you some Hittite. You get some Hittite tablets in your spare time and do some reading. Or you can get a translation. It's a little easier. The Hittite story of Elkunirsa, shorten it to El. Elkunirsa and Asertu. By the way, derivations of these gods become the idols that Israel falls into worshiping. Because Israel starts to take on the cultic practices of its neighbors. They liked these stories. Because these stories made the gods something that were easier to understand and relate to. Because these are gods that humanity has made in in their image. Let me pause for just a moment since Brent gave me extra time today. And fill in something for those who are Christians. We need to understand this. For those who are not, uh, it's instructive to understand. So here's the difference in, in the approach here. You have this idea of God. And you have this idea of humans. Now, under the biblical approach... The Bible approach says that God has revealed himself to humans in the Bible. So when we read the Bible, we're reading a revealing or a revelation of God to humanity. God reveals to people. Things that people need to understand. Sometimes it's just through historical interaction. So we'll read in the Bible of how God interacted with Abraham and his wife. But through reading those stories even, we will get God revealed to us in important ways. God's revealing himself to us. He's revealing us in relationship to him. The Bible is God's revelation to humans. But the pagan cults have done the opposite. And that's human musings about God. Those are people in their imagination thinking about what God must be. It's the opposite. And and it's I believe it makes sense for why this is so radically different than all of this you're going to have in the surrounding cultures. Because when people muse about God, we tend to make God into just a supersized version of what we are. Whereas the revelation of God in the Bible is something unique, wildly different than what we come up with on our own. I think it's an indicia for why the Bible's got some credibility to me. But regardless. So let me tell you the story of Elkunirsa and Asertu. They're in love. They're in love, but there's a problem. And someone wants to kill the other. Actually, what happens is Asertu first, she wants to have a relationship, an extramarital affair, if you will, with Baal. El finds out about it. He's none too happy. And I got to tell you, you read this sordid drama and you're going to feel like this is days of our lives. Because they all start plotting and scheming against each other. And how they can make the relationship work and not get caught or not get upset or just kill someone and all the rest of this stuff. It's, it's wild to read. But that's the way their gods were. Their gods are sexual beings. They're driven by sexual appetites. You don't find the God of the Old Testament in any way, shape, form, or fashion being driven by a sexual appetite. 
But doesn't it make sense when humanity's making up gods or thinking about what gods must be like, that because humanity has sexual appetites, they're going to impose those upon a god. And that's what you see. With Israel, the gods that that is explained, God is not limited. Now, yes, there are limitations. God's not going to lie. He's not going to be... be, uh, uh, he, he's not going to die. He's not going to, you know, those things. But, but in terms of this world and God's power, God's not limited. He creates the world. Not so with the other gods. They do have human limitations. Go back to the Enuma Elish. There's a time where Apsu is very, very upset in the Enuma Elish. Why, you ask? Because all of the other gods are making so much racket, he can't get a good night's sleep. So Apsu yells at his wife, another god, and says, goddess, and says, they're the, all the little baby gods. Their behavior is noisome to me. By day I have no rest, at night I do not sleep. I wish to put an end to their behavior, to do away with it. Let silence reign so I can get a good night's sleep. Now, that doesn't sound like a God to me. That sounds like a human being with too many kids that are having too much fun. I can't get any sleep. Just the the kids are being too noisome. Can you make the baby stop crying? By the way, I am a baby whisperer. If you ever have that trouble, I get those babies to sleep. Just saying, different people have different gifts right here. But please don't call me in the middle of the night to come over because I need my sleep. Um, the, 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 the remake of this is just, I mean, you read these stories. You can't read these stories and not just sit there and go, holy smokes, man. Where did Israel come up with their stuff? It's so radically different than everything else. You read about these other gods and they get tired. In the Enuma Elish, one of the reasons that we have the people, you know why they made people? Because the gods were getting tired of having to do all the work. Look, I'm wiped out. Let's make some people. Let them dig some irrigation ditches. I'm tired of this. The gods get weary. Now you may be saying, but God of the Old Testament has a day of rest after creating everything on the seventh day. Yes, but not from fatigue. It's not after six days, whew, has a lot of work. I need a nap. Day seven, nap day. No, it's a rest day in the sense that God's finished his work and so he's not working. It's think of it like a musical score and you have a rest in the musical score. The rest does not mean, whew, I'm tired of singing those notes. I got to get a breather in. No, it's just the singing is stopped at that point. You take a rest and then you begin again because it's a pause. It's, it's, it's that time period where you're not doing it. Whether it's, you're not singing or the instrument's not playing or whatever it may be, whoever's got the rest there doesn't work. That's the sense of God's rest. The writer of Hebrews makes it clear as well because the same theme is carried through in the book of Hebrews. But, but the, not, not, you, you, don't, you don't see anywhere the God of Israel saying, man, I am tuckered. Whoo, a lot of work. Wiped me out. Time for vacation. Doesn't happen. The other gods, the neighboring gods, they pout. Oh, there's one god who just goes into absolute pouting. And he just decides, and he's a god of fertility too and rain. So when he pouts, it's like a famine. There's no rain. All the crops are dying. When all the crops die, the people don't have any food. But not only do the people not have any food, they're not feeding anything to the gods. Because the people would sacrifice and they'd burn gods so that the gods could eat the, the, the sacrifice of the burned food. 
when when you read the Epic of Gilgamesh, the the story of of a, a, a flood account, after the 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 Utnapishtim has has had the flood and and he's been uh, uh, and the world has gone dark in a sense and and the floods receded and he and he sacrifices to the gods the gods come buzzing around the sacrifice like flies around dead meat because they're famished because no one's been around to feed them you know the the god that's pouting in 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 the story i was referencing from the enuma in Elish is one where some of the gods think we got to do something you know he's now pouted and put himself into a sleep and nothing's getting done so they send a bee to sting him to wake him up that's the difference the gods pout they tire they weary there's a huge difference between them Israel's God's not limited. Those other gods share human limitations. Now, let me tell you briefly about the differences in nature. When we're talking about nature, this gets a little fuzzy, but this is very, 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 very important. We need to understand two different concepts. We need to understand the concept of cosmology and function. Now, I want for cosmology you to think about language. It's not cosmetology, my daughter. This is not what kind of mascara do the gods wear. Cosmology, the cosmos, the study of the cosmos, that there are certain ideas, kind of like a language, how they thought the world was made. Not not made in the sense of created. How they thought the what they thought were the elements of the world. We understand atoms. They didn't understand atoms. They didn't think of atoms. They didn't think of things being atomically structured. That does actually happen in Greece for a while, but but not in Israel and its world. So there's cosmology, and in cosmology, the understanding of the structure of the world, Israel is like its neighbors. But in function, why these things are there, the whys, Israel is not. Israel is different in function. So let's look at cosmology for an example. Think of it like a three-layer cake. They believed that there was the earth, that's what we're walking on, and up above are heavens, and down below is the underworld. And that's what they thought. And Israel functions with that same language and those same thought forms. And so when you read Genesis 1, for example, and Genesis 2, you'll read thought forms that are the same type of vocabulary and thought forms of the culture and the day. That's what their language was. That's what those thought forms were. So you can read that. And so, for example, if you look at how they thought the world existed, they did not understand that we are a, an, an egg-shaped uh, dirt clod spinning around, uh, uh, rotating on an axis that's a little askew, going around a planet called the sun with a moon circling around us out in a solar system with other planets and asteroids that exist within a galaxy that's named after a really good candy bar that's spun out at the end of a sprawling universe, they did not have that understanding and those terminologies. They didn't think that way. They didn't talk that way. They thought that there was land and on top of the land was sky. And at the end, the sky's held up by mountains off of the land. And this whole disk of land is sitting, floating on water. And you can see the water if you go far enough to the edge of the lands. And then up above the sky are these waters that exist. Sometimes there will be holes that open such that the waters can come down through the sky. 
It's called rain. That's the, the, that is the, the, the scientific thought forms that existed, the cosmology that existed when the creation story is revealed to Israel. Now, the function's very different. For Israel, uh, look, for the rest of the, the, the neighbors, the world is simply part of the gods, an extension of the gods, something the gods use, something the gods do. It's the domain of the gods. Don't tick the gods off. If you tick them off, you're going to have trouble with nature, etc., etc. But Israel is told that nature was made, made with people in mind. The foodstuffs are for people to eat or to feed other life forms that then people can eat. There, the light is there so we can see. The night is there so we can rest. Seasons exist with people in mind. People have dominion. People live to God's purposes within this creation. It's a very different functioning world in the revelation given to Israel than it is in the mindset of Israel's neighbors. Last, let me briefly tell you about the differences in humanity. And we've covered many of these in the topics we've already talked about. But under Israel's revelation... All people are made in God's image and they're made to be in a relationship to God as they live to his purpose. So people are not made to do God's work because God's tired. People are not made to serve other people. All people are made in God's image. Now you go to the alternate cultures and the alternate cultures will have generally, not always, but generally the king made in God's image. And then the people do as the king commands. So Pharaoh is a god. And the people do what Pharaoh the god tells them. The other Mesopotamian cultures. The king is the god. Or the image bearer of the god. The expression of a god. And the people then have to do what the king tells them to. Very different. Israel didn't even get a king for a long time. So the context of this is radically different. And as we look next week at the creation account, and as we look next week at Paul's writings of God and nature, if we don't understand the context in which they're written, then we've put blinders on ourselves in our ability to understand them. We've got handcuffs on and our ability to be dexterous and to work with them. We've limited ourselves severely and we're in a dangerous risk of misunderstanding what is actually in the scriptures by removing them from their context. So we need to have them in context and I look forward to doing that with you next week. Here are your points for home. First, in the beginning, God created I need this point for home this week. I'm fighting a cold and I got to go back to trial. I got to I got to finish with this witness on Tuesday. He's uh, used to be the president of the company. Uh, Bill and Ann can tell you it's kind of like pulling teeth. I can say to him, "Hey, the sky is blue." And and you know there's just a difference in mentality with witnesses between people who say um, I need to tell the truth. I'm going to put it in the best light I can, but I need to tell the truth. Versus witnesses who say, okay, how do I win this? With no regard to the truth whatsoever. And it's just, I mean, I'm, I got all of that stuff. I'm sick. My, my family's here. They're not with me. I have a grandbaby who's growing up and she doesn't know me as well as she should. I'm behind in getting her to say my name first. I got, I got all these things. But you know what? In the beginning, God created. Because my God is in control. My God is in control. And I'm going to walk into this week. I don't care if I'm sick. 
I don't care if I'm lonely. I don't care if I'm tired. I will have my God with me and he is in control. And my job this week is to do things to his glory. Win, lose, or draw. Fat and happy or skinny and tired. And I hope you'll join me in that. God is in control this week. God is in control. He didn't lose control. He's in control. In the beginning, God created and he created the heavens and the earth. This world is not God. And I don't need to live like it is. What I eat should not be my God. The pursuit of things of this world should not be my God. This world is not my God. It's not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue, as the old hymn goes. And so I'm thinking about this this week, and I'm thinking, I'm going to see the world for what it is. This is a world that God has made and placed me in and given me things to do, and I'm going to be about my Lord's service this week in this world. But I'm not living for this world. I'm in it, but I'm not of it. Last. God created man, and and that Hebrew word there means person. So women, y'all don't get out of this one. It's all of us. God created people in his own image. That includes an ability for me to be creative because he's a creating God. He chose to make me. I have an ability to make choices. I have an ability to choose what I want to do in this life. Don't get me wrong. I do believe in in the fallen humanity and that that my choices are not bent towards good naturally and I need the guidance of God and I need the God fulfilling me and I need God leading me and all. But I still have choices in this world. And as I walk this week, I want to walk deliberately as someone that God chose to make. I'm not an accident. Dr. David will talk about how a Pastor David will talk about either one, Pastor David, Doctor, whatever. He will talk about how God calls the disciples. God chose to make me. He chose to make you. You're here for a reason. He could have taken you off this planet yesterday. He did not do that. If you're sitting here today or you're watching this today, you exist for a reason. And I want to walk deliberately as someone that God chose to make within this world. I ask you to join me. Can I bless you in the name of Jesus? I'm sorry I went over two minutes. But Lord, it's important to me to, to, to give you glory and praise and honor. And it's my prayer that you would bless each person here. May they understand, not just intellectually, not just in their heart, but in every fiber of their being, may they sense that you are the God in control, that you have your hand in their life, that this world exists. Not as paradise, but as a place where we are to do your work. May we seek your strength and your wisdom and your guidance. And may we live deliberately as your children in this world. Bringing you all the praise, all the honor, and all of the glory. In the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.